You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Good morning, Michael. Andre, do you know what? I'm kind of excited today. I am too. <laughs> it's Friday, first of all. Uh, it's my last day at the radio station today. It is. So probably pretty exciting for you as well, or bittersweet, I guess. Exciting. And uh, and we have a guest. We have a special guest. We have a special guest. This podcast has literally been two years in the making with coming and going and schedules Andre's and everything. One year and yeah. Um, so we are uh, joined by Dan Sullivan of Rose Hall Run in Prince Edward County for the very first Prince Edward County edition of the, um, I guess, the Legacy Series. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Andre. I'm well. How are you guys? Good. Hold it in there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, aren't I'm, we all? I want to... I'm I'm looking forward to a vaccine into my arm. I don't know when, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you, know, you know, it is kind well, of funny I, though, though because the the legacy series that we've done has always involved generally being in person or one of at least one of us being in person and I think that was what we were trying to coordinate was to do an in-person sit down and tasting with Dan and it's just funny how, you know, COVID has kind of completely changed our production routine. It's changed a lot of things, guys. And uh um, you know, it's, it's, I, I think reframed, um, the way that all of us, uh, look at, um, uh, look at, uh, how we relate to, uh, each other and, and in our case, our, our, our customers and, uh, and the world around us. So it's been, been a, a challenge, but it's also been a great learning experience for us too. So, so Dan, let's let's start right at the beginning, like we usually try to do with uh, with these legacy podcasts. And uh, you know, you've got Rose Hall Run. You've been in existence for how many how many years now? May I ask? If... We're celebrating our twentieth this year, oh, gentlemen. Oh, uh, we really are late on this one, Andre. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. after twenty years, if you can think back twenty years ago, or probably a little further. How the heck do you get into the wine business? Well. <laughs> I, uh, if I, if I knew, knew, knew then what I know now, um, I might do it differently, but I got into the wine business, uh, like so many people, I got interested in wine through tasting it and drinking it and tasting, you know, some really great wines, uh, uh, in my, uh, ill-gotten youthful, uh, uh, time where I was, you know, chasing, uh, some, some really, uh, you know, great, um, wines early uh before i was ever contemplating making or growing wine uh and what that did was it it led to a really uh a deep appreciation uh for what good wine really was and i think that the sort of moment uh for me when the light really went on about wine making was uh, a friend of mine who i knew through my previous uh job which was owning a window and door company in toronto um had a friend that was making some homemade wine and he brought me a sample of it and it was i believe a vidal and it was probably like the 93 or 94 uh vintage of it and to that point i'd been uh dabbling in visiting you know a couple of wineries um down in niagara but hadn't hadn't really seriously thought anything about uh, making wine or um, about the industry, frankly, uh, uh, in a big way uh, domestically. Um, but that kind of really clicked with me. And it was one of those moments that I'm sure you guys have had in your wine world where you go, ah, now I get it. And um, this was interesting because the wine was so clean, but um, it also had, you know, like like little 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 faults like I, uh, I I detected a little bit of SO2 on the nose on this particular wine and it got me to thinking that wow if I really put my mind to it I might be able to actually make something pretty interesting and having a chemistry background and um, <clears throat> some of the educational background that I had in the past it kind of lent itself naturally to, uh, 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 to the pursuit of of winemaking from the technical aspects of it but what really intrigued me and struck me was when i went down to niagara and i got to meet some of the the growers and the and the people um that uh that were tied to the land um namely you know gunther and mary funk were huge uh for me gerald close who's the 
Um, they, incidentally, Gunther and Mary were the uh, co-founders of 13th Street Winery, which uh, they've since sold to the Witties. Um, and uh, and Gunther, uh, Gerald Close, who is the head of viticulture for Artera Canada, uh, and Donna B. Eastman, who are legendary um, uh, uh, Beansville bench growers who've, who've been around for probably 40 years. So, um, so I had some great mentors uh, early on that taught me what it really was like to grow premium quality fruit and what it took. And um, I just fell in love with, with that. And that's the beginning point, I guess, you know? So um, I had, some, yeah. So you set up shop in, in the, the county. How many wineries were in the county when you planted your first vineyard there? <laughs> So there were a number that were formative at the time that had plans on opening. But the year that we purchased our property was the year that Wapoose, either that year or the following year, Wapoose Estates opened um, for the first time. I think it was the summer of 2001. And they predated um, everybody by a few years. I think their first vines probably went in the ground in about 93 um, the fundamental difference was that um, it was a fully hybrid based uh, winery, whereas the the newer projects that were coming along were, were more, more focused on vinifera, specifically Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, and uh, so <clears throat> next door uh, uh, to us was uh, uh, the beginnings of Peddleston Wines. I think Mike Peddleston and uh, I believe it was the uh, McCurdy family. Um uh, planted the uh, first vines there in 99, I believe. Uh, and around the same time, uh, actually a year prior to that, I think Deborah Paskus up at Claus and Chase, um, the folks over at Chadsey's uh, by Chadsey's Cairns and uh, James down at Long Dog uh, had all planted vines in around the 99 or 2000, uh, that general time frame right around the turn of the millennium. And the year that we started in 2001 was sort of the the really big what I sort of call the gold rush year and that was the year where um, the first like really large scale um, serious um, investments into the wine industry were made and that was namely by Huff Estates and the Granger Prince Edward both of who undertook really dramatic and big projects and in very, very different visions. You know, Huff's is an ultra modern, you know, you guys have seen the winery uh, built into the bunker on the hill and stuff like that. And then the Granges, which was a really loving restoration of an 1840s barn. So um, two very, very different visions, but um, that sort of really stuck the stake in the ground um, for uh for prince edward county launching it and we started that same year and along with us was uh the current owners of cassidy and now the uh dominic di pietro antonio and uh his family um uh my uh, operations manager stephen dick singer uh founded their vineyard fieldstone estates um which has has since been sold to uh, hardy winery um black prince i think started that year um i'm i'm missing a few but um, but there were a number of people, um, that, that started that. And then shortly afterwards, Norman Hardy bought some property and, um, uh, uh, Sam Banks and, um, and, and, uh, you know, immediately, uh, following, um, uh, that, that first investment, uh, uh, and by that time, you know, um, things were really starting to rock and roll. So, so, so you were your winery number five. Is this is that correct? Thereabouts, yeah, yeah. Actually, so so what happened was uh, we planted our first acre in two thousand and one, and then expanded it to uh, about eight acres in two thousand and two, and then kept growing um, <clears throat> up until pretty significantly up in, until uh, two thousand and seven, to the point where we have twenty five acres, twenty twenty five and change uh, in the ground now. Um, but we did not open our doors until we could offer an estate-grown product. So uh, although we were one of the first in the ground, we were probably about number five, six, seven um, in uh, obtaining our license uh, for selling wine, which uh, took place in early 2006. And we launched 
with our 2004 state grown uh, uh, Cabernet and uh, uh, sorry, uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So, um, uh, and uh, both of those wines um, won the uh, the inaugural Art of Vino Wine Awards that David Lowerson founded back in the day. And uh, that sort of really launched us as being one of the sort of premier properties in Prince Edward County, I guess. You know what, Dan, you're, you're bringing back so many uh, just weird and wonderful memories. I do remember Pendles, Pendles, Pendleson Wines. Uh, I do remember buying a bottle, uh, uh, and, and he used to seal in plastic cork. I remember opening a bottle uh, a number of years yeah. ago to see how it aged, and obviously uh, plastic no. does not, so goodbye. <laughs> yeah, that was a hard lesson learned by a lot of us, I think, uh, Michael. And then, um, and then I also, I also remember the, those David Lawrence awards. I remember they were held at Huff, and they're in a little room above the uh, above the inn. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, some pretty fond memories. I remember the really early days where, um, you know, there was a lot more noise and and smoke than there was really uh, fire um, when it when it came to wine and. Uh, uh, frankly, the amount of hubris that we kind of had for 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 a place that hadn't really um, done much in, in in the world of winemaking um, and how much uh, sort of noise we were generating. But at the end of the day, you know, I think we we kind of lived up uh, to the early hype of what Prince Edward County was ab- about, and it has proved out to be a really great place to grow Pinot and Chardonnay. Um, inherently, I don't think we'll ever be a region that's uh, focused on. Uh, producing high volumes of wine. Uh, the growing here is just too painstaking and hard, um, at least uh, from my perspective, um, to, to, to really go um, sort of really big and industrial. Um, but that's part of the charm of it is that I, I think that what you'll have is you'll have a really great quilt work of all different kinds of producers of, you know, slightly varying sizes. But I think that the um, landscape here um, although it's dominated sales-wise, I guess, by our Terre Sandbanks, um, I think that the, um, the genesis of, of, of the region, uh, was considerably different, um, than Niagara was, uh, in, in the early days. And so I think the trajectory of how we're going to grow is, is going to be a little different and, and, and pretty interesting. I, I have to say that I am so glad to hear you you say, and I, and I hope as a region that they would say that you got a lot more hype uh, than you, you deserved. Because I, I remember, you know, hearing about the hype, heading out to Prince Edward County, tasting the wines and going, what's the big deal um, at the moment? Uh, and anybody who would uh, ask me, should I head out to Prince Edward County? I, say, I would say it's beautiful, great place to, to hang out for the weekend, but don't expect much from the wines. It's coming. But you got to give it a good five years for things to to get some age on them to for for guys like yourself to you know get a get a feel for the wines and the wines you wanted to make. So I'm so happy to hear that. Looking back, you guys are saying, or at least you're saying, we 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 didn't deserve the hype we got, and maybe the hype was a little too early. Yeah, um, although you know it set a bar for us to try to live up to pretty early on and pretty quickly. And I think that aspirational thing was really important, at least for me, in trying to, um, y- you know, prove that we could. And and uh, so um, from that standpoint, um, there was a flip side to it. And the positive of it was that we had pretty big uh, boots to fill. And uh, and by and large, I, I think the best producers in Prince Edward County are, are, are doing that in spades. Um, the other thing that I think is important to note is that although we do have a lot of different grape varietals in the ground, the early and core focus was really um, uh, uh, on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And I, uh, I, I think that was really key in, in, in driving um, sort of a, a collective vision in the area now, you know, that's not to say that there aren't other wineries that are pursuing other things, including ourselves that have other grape varieties in the ground, but I'll put it to you this way, Pinot Noir uh, uh, is what, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are what are potentially putting Prince Edward County on the map and everything else is kind of along for the ride in my view. So, um, 
<clears throat> so I, I think that discipline on focusing on those things really, really helped um, define who we were uh, fairly early on. And I, I think to this day, I, I mean, you know, when you guys talk about wine, you know, it, it's Pinot and Chard and, and I guess sparkling wine pretty much, right? Yes. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm really glad that you're the person that we're, we're having on to kind of lay the groundwork for who el- whoever else we talk to in Prince Edward County because, you know, you uh, don't know if you know this, Dan, but we have a swear jar. And every time I say the word Chardonnay for 2021, oh. it is a contribution to Brian Schmidt's efforts in Haiti. So there's one for me. Uh, Andre, I just want to point out, I spoke to Brian Schmidt about that uh, that controversy, controversial word earlier. He thinks it should be incremental every time you say it. Uh, it's got to be like five for the first one and then 10 for the next one and then 15 uh, for the next one. No, yeah, I've spoken like a true Riesling grower. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> It more has to do with how I've hijacked this podcast to be so focused on a, a single varietal for basically 2019 and 2020. But uh, Dan, when I go to visit you, I know that I'm going to get a great bottle of Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir. Uh, I know Michael and I have both written glowing reviews of, of vintage, the vintage after vintage of those particular wines. But I know when I get to come and visit you and we go and take a look at the production facility, you've always got something really creative on the go like you're you're clearly pushing the envelope to to at the very least be the person to discover what the next variety variety that belongs in prince Edward county is going to be like what do you what do you think the future for the, i guess the if if pino and shard are the um are the flagships what is going to be the next grape added to the roster to you know help help firmly establish the wine region so um it's interesting. I uh, I think um, there are a few varietals that um, I've worked with that can certainly fill, you, you know, it's sort of like the third scoring option on a basketball team, right? Um, you know, you've got you've got your two go to superstars and then you're looking and just in case they're covered. You want that that third one that can be the wild card for you. And I would say probably. Um, just by default, most people look toward, uh, red grapes for that. So I would probably say Cabernet Franc, uh, but with the caveat that I think that Cabernet Franc is, is even a bit more site specific in Prince Edward County than Pinot and Chardonnay are, and that you have to understand that you're not going to get it fully ripe every year. And certainly my history with it. And I've actually made Cabernet Franc from more different vineyards than anybody in Prince Edward County. Uh, uh, last count, I believe it was four or five. And so I have um, a pretty um, good understanding of what's growing where. And, um, you know, it does really well in the hot years. So in that sense, it's, it's kind of um, a, nice, uh, a nice alternative um, to Pinot, where I tend to like Pinots uh, from cooler, more classic vintages. That's not to say that warm vintage uh, uh, Pinots uh, aren't delicious and juicy as well, but um, but Cabernet Franc really shines in those hot years, and uh, Pinot Noir, I think, really shines in the cooler years, and then Chardonnay's in between. The other varietal that's a white that I think um, has uh, immense promise is Pinot Gris. And uh, which kind of stands to reason it's an early season ripener like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir or early to mid anyway. And um, uh, but I think that Pinot Gris has uh, suffered the fate of uh, the Grigioization of it. And so I I think that um, really fine examples of uh, of Gris are fairly few and far between but you know i always look to a producer like tiefenbrunner for example um to kind of set a tone for you know stylistically um something that's pretty interesting um that has a foot in both the the new and old world to me and uh and i i think that's uh that's where we're at and you know oregon oregon has some some nice stuff um but yeah those those varieties i'm really happy with how our sauvignon blanc does at the at the farm as well and of course we have our tempranillo which uh is um proving to be the interesting i uh um 
it's planted on the lousiest soil on the property, so I, I'm probably not being fair to it. But uh, I, I don't think I'd stake my future on that varietal um, just from the uh, reliability of, uh, of of the way it's growing at our place. Well, interesting to note, Tempranillo usually does grow on lousy soil, so you've probably got it in the right place. Let's let's start there. But yeah. it's interesting to note that that Pinot Gris, I, I'm, I, I'm not a huge Pinot Gris fan, but I always find the stuff coming out of the county is interesting because you guys are playing with it, uh, you know, either doing some skin contact, putting it in barrel, doing something interesting. And I think that's what Gris really needs. Uh, so these are just, you know, side comments that I have. I wanted to bring us back a little bit to your to your beginnings. Um, and uh, here's a quick one. First grape in the ground. For me, yeah, Pinot, Pinot, no, Pinot Noir, interesting. Pinot um, Chardonnay, and then and then I have my toy box, which we'll talk about later. Okay, uh, and then uh, I guess I guess the most exciting part about what was going on in the county was when you finally get the VQA designation, so that you can put it on the bottle. Um, when did that come about, and and what did you uh, and what were your I guess your feelings at the time when you finally got that? Oh, well, I was elated when we finally got it, you know, uh, so that happened in 2007 and it was a lot of collective effort with everybody in Prince Edward County working uh, together, putting vines in the ground, growing grapes um, and, and finally getting the production numbers that allowed us to hit the threshold to get our, our DVA uh, in 2007. So um, that was a pretty big deal. And um, and then um, there were some interesting uh, laws uh, surrounding uh, great content. And so I remember really early on uh, the original law was that you could purchase up to 50 percent of the fruit that you were making into wine from another region as long as it was matched with 50 percent uh, of the fruit from your own region uh, but I guess we got some sort of an amendment to that and uh, this really didn't pertain to me because by the time I was selling wine I think um, they had uh, we'd either received our DVA which meant that it no longer applied or they had rescinded the whole thing completely I've forgotten exactly what happened but they amended it so that you could leverage it uh, 10% county fruit, 90% outside with a sliding scale, 80, 20, 70, 30. And uh, so some of the early people uh, took advantage of that uh, to get some products so they could get their doors open. And um, and that, I, I think, um, worked reasonably well for them. And then subsequent to that, um, you, you know, uh, it, it uh, al allowed for it. And at the beginning, as I said, you know, our focus really wanted to be to open uh, with something that came from our farm. And so we waited until that time came and it took a little bit longer than some places, but, um, uh, you know, I, I think it was the right decision for us and I still do. And, uh, and, you know, at the core of what we are, although we have some, you know, brands that are a little bit, um, bigger and are made with both grown and purchased fruit, um, that are available in the LCBO, the, the heart and soul of what we are is a boutique winery still. So, uh, but yeah, uh, 2007 was, it was huge. The, the DVA, it was a game changer for us. First, first year you put JCR on the label. First year we put JCR on the label was 2010, I believe. And prior to that, it was Rose Hall Vineyard. And then our very first ones were St. Cindy, uh, and named, uh, named after the our patron saint, uh, Cindy Zwicker Reston, who is my business partner, Cam, John Campbell Reston, JCR's uh, spouse, and uh, Lynn's sister. And watch for it because I'm thinking that we may have to resurrect our St. Cindy brand um uh down the road in a special way um but i'm gonna just leave it at that for now um but yeah yeah that was the first year i believe it was 2010 because i have i have fond memories of that the uh, i remember tasting that wine in a in a group of, uh, of other wines and uh i ended up drinking the whole bottle totally accidentally before dinner and uh <laughs> yeah i had a few people that uh <laughs> that that uh had that uh that that 
happy mishap. I was like, I'm I'm a little lightheaded. I'm not sure why. Oh well, there's no there's no wine in this bottle. Of course I am. <laughs> well, well, Michael, you've come a long way. I'm sure you could probably do too, and not even uh... <laughs> not even one. I mean, it's yeah, a nice thing yeah. about the county wines is that the alcohol is usually a little bit lower in in spite of all the flavor they're they're packing. It's uh yeah, I, I hate to sort of just say me too, but I I remember my first experience with the JCR wine being very similar to what Michael has said. Yeah, it really is a, an easy wine to drink just because it isn't heavy. And, um, you know, there's that fresh acidity there that always uh, kind of carries the day. And um, in both the Pinot and the Chardonnay, frankly. And um, But if you're asking, like, which one is kind of like just surefire every year, I mean, the Chardonnay is like just one of those money wines that is so fun to make um, and, and really kind of, you know, I won't say it makes itself, but it's it's the next closest thing. You know, I basically just need to point it in the right direction and I can take my hands off the steering wheel and let it roll. You know, um, I also, and, I also uh, have and, a really fond memory of that of that Chardonnay. And it has and it has to do with with uh, yours and, and Lynn's reaction to uh, to something Andre and I did a, a number of years ago on the podcast. We brought up uh, JCR Chardonnay. We had both been to the county in the same year, uh, within like months of each other, and we just hyped the heck out of that JCR Chardonnay. Andre, I don't remember the year. I don't know if you remember, but um, I remember Lynn uh, sending out an email to both Andre and I, and it was like a week later, and she said, sales of the JCR Chardonnay skyrocketed, and we couldn't understand why until we listened to your podcast, and we, we heard uh we heard you had you had given us a real boost there and our sales just jumped uh so you guys thanked us and you know what uh not that we're always looking for thanks but it was really nice to hear that uh, that um, what we were doing was uh, uh was helping uh wineries along so i want to thank you and lynn for for uh giving us that uh, that email which they're so they're so few and far between <laughs> it's, well it, that, it, it's that, not... that surprises me actually that that um that they are that few and far between because there's a, a pretty special relationship um between the world of wine critics and wine appreciation wine education and producers and it really is very much sy symbiotic and um you guys and and you in particular michael and that's not to say that um, you know, you, you just came along a little bit later, Andre, but Michael, <laughs> from the very early days, um, you know, you were, you were very focused on the domestic industry and, um, you know, folks like you have been extremely helpful in, in, you know, developing, um, a, a following for, uh, for Ontario wineries, uh, um, here in the province and you know you're you're never a hero in your hometown but you're doing your damnedest to make us that way so thank you and uh, andre you know i mean you know you had uh not only um you know great insights in, in, into wine because you came at it as a fairly like you know i, I call you know a fresh-faced new figure in the in the wine thing that and it, it always struck me how curious and um thirsty not just for wine but for knowledge you were about it and uh it was always it's it still is always super refreshing to uh to to spend an hour with you talking wine so thanks yeah it's i mean it's it's always great to to be around the people who are pushing the pushing the envelope and making sure things are are progressing uh and i think you're definitely at the 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 forefront of that i mean the lineup of wines that you have certainly speaks to that. I know we've talked about it. Michael, I might be jumping ahead, so you can rein me back in if we have to have to go back. But I think it's one of the things where you said at your core, you're a boutique winery. But I've, I've always said, and I don't know if I've really talked about it a lot on this podcast, but I think when you get into the wine business, there's a certain intersection that has to take place between artistry and business. And if you swing too far to one side or the other, you're going to have a tough time. And what I find fascinating is like, while you still got JCR, and I know for like Michael and I, we'll we'll you know we'll run down the door to to get our hands on that. You've got other interesting products in the lineup that appeal to a broader audience. Your uh, Pixie Petite, that uh, myself and uh, 
my uh, people that I got to spend some time with last summer went through quite a few of those. Your regular pixie, your pet net, like you're always not just looking to be creative with the winemaking for the sake of being creative, but you have the idea of of selling it. Can you, I guess, talk a little bit about the philosophy of how you build the the portfolio for Rose Hall Run? So um, some of it was planned and like so many fortuitous things in the world, some of it is kind of, I guess, dumb luck. And, uh, and so Pixie was kind of born out of, uh, which I think for me was the real big turning point. Uh, although we had launched our Defiant and Liberated uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, they were uh, very much kind of varietal-based wines um, that were meeting with some success uh, on the level of uh, at the LCBO, um, but hadn't really taken off. But it was really when we started making Pixie in 2014 or 15, um, where where things really kind of self-propelled into uh uh into in, into the growth um that we are now and that was the that was like the little little engine that could right i think i can i think i can and it kind of dragged um uh the other wines along and and the brand recognition uh along with it and so pixie actually was born out of um the fact that i know you guys probably remember our old sully's wicker wines which were field blends and um you know, named after Edelschwicker from Alsace, which meant uh, kind of like house blend or, or, or you know, field blend um, uh, in that area where they would have a vineyard that was planted and been replanted with filling in holes so many times that they didn't really know what the varietals were. And largely it was based on Sylvaner, what they call Klevner there. Um, and we had a planting of Ehrenfelser. So it started with our white, which had Ehrenfelser in it. And then we would augment it with um, some grapes from an area of our vineyard called the Toy Box, where we have a row each uh, at the time of Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris, Gewürztraminer, um, and then Gamay. And uh, at the uh, in the early days, we had Baco, but we tore that out and put Yay. in another row of Pinot Thank Noir. God! Thank <laughs> God! And, uh, yeah, and... Uh, so anyway, um, that was so we were making that Sully's Wicker and we were trying to launch it and it was super popular and successful at the winery. But when we took it out to a broader audience in the LCBO, um, you know, the message kind of kind of gets lost and people go, oh, I've never had a Sully's Wicker grape before. I'm not going to go near that. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, um, there was, uh, I, I guess, far less adventurousness um in in the wine drinking pro- uh, public i think it's probably largely the same now but it has changed a little bit and there's uh, a younger um group of wine drinkers that uh em- embrace the the weird and wonderful more so now than than back then and um and anyway what we were finding is that it was a struggle uh beyond basically the county um region and and locally uh where the brand was known to get it recognized so we decided to discontinue making it but that left me with a bunch of uh white wine that was really aromatic and nice and slightly off dry that uh i didn't know what to do with and so what i started doing was thinking well you know what uh maybe we'll put some bubbles into this so uh, so I started fooling around with blends and stuff like that. And I kept bringing it to my daughter, Megan, whose nickname is Pixie when she was a little kid. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, an, uh another, uh, uh, young lady that was working with us, my daughter's best friend, uh, Alex Simons, um, who actually designed the original label, uh, for Pixie working with me. And, um, and anyway, uh, I started bringing them the white wines. They were kind of, this is nice. And then I noticed that I had a little bit of Gamay sitting over in the corner. So I blended a little bit of the Gamay into the white wine and turned it pink. And all of a sudden, it was a huge hit. And uh, and then I actually took it up to Hinterland. And they uh, force carbonated the first Pixie for us. So it was a non-VQA product that we were selling out of the tasting room. And then it evolved into a uh, Charmat. Uh, process wine which is the way that it's being uh, uh, made today and um, and so the backstory on that wine was that if you look at the label there's a little fairy but in the early days it was a little monkey with wings and uh, 
And it was the monkey from the Pixies album, Doolittle, uh, with the song, This Monkey's Gone to Heaven. So it kind of, so it was kind of like, uh, like a big Lebowski thing. It was the rug that tied the whole room together, you know? And, um, and, uh, so, uh, so the backstory of the Pixies is my daughter, her best friend designing the label and then the band, the Pixies. And since then, we've created a number of other wines that kind of, uh, are, uh, named uh, based on on Lynn and I, we we met as university uh, radio disc jockeys at Western. So we've had a longstanding uh, love of alt rock and and um, you know sort of new and up and coming music. And so we've got Ceremony, which is named after the New Order song Stardust, uh, obvious reasons. And we have a new one coming up that uh, you guys will be getting a bottle of in the next week to 10 days and that'll give you something else to write about and there'll be a, a uh, story surrounding that. I, I do love so i do love how you get very creative with uh, some of the labels i think one of the favorite one of my favorite labels ever to come out is um acid head and i think you only <laughs> you only did that once right yeah you know what I, I i think that i'd like to go back and do that wine again um and yeah, that was that was a really fun wine to make. It was a one-off because of the vineyard. So what happened in 2016 was Craig Wismer, a really great grower uh, down in Niagara that uh, owns and looks after some incredible properties down there, uh, came to me and there was a uh, uh, a nice little, uh, uh, I think it was about a three or four acre plot uh, of, um, of vines uh, that was slated uh, to be developed and turned into condominiums. And so for the final year, the owner of the property um, decided that he was getting too old and he didn't really want to farm it. So he contracted Craig Wismer and then Craig turned to me and said, Dan, are you interested in having me custom farm this fruit for you this year? And I said, yeah, I'm in. And so we ended up buying um, uh, whatever came off the property. And uh, it turned out to be, uh, I think, about five or six tons of Riesling and maybe a little less of the Chardonnay. And what we did was we took a portion of that and uh, hung it late and picked it late. And uh, I barrel fermented it in old neutral French oak punchins and uh, gave it some extended lease contact and uh, made it in what I sort of really envisioned to be sort of an Alsatian style. So it was quite relatively quite dry i think it ended up being around 12 and a half percent alcohol something like that and uh yeah it was a, a pretty tasty little uh wine and right now you know i i do maybe one day have plans to uh, make riesling again but our our portfolio of white wines is so crowded right now that i just um kind of don't see a see a place for it currently so uh so i haven't made one since but uh but yeah one day we'll do it part of our small lots or something else. I and, and I love how you so. spent all your time talking about what was in the bottle, because the thing that I, I, I do vividly remember what the wine tastes like, but like it is the first, I think the only like full on psychedelic wine label that I've yeah. ever seen from Ontario. Yeah. Well, I, I really, um, uh, I really, you know, in my mind's eye, I, I just love the, the concept of, um, you know, people that loved reason calling themselves acid heads and stuff like that. And of course, Growing up in the uh, 70s, um, it had an entirely different meaning. And uh, so I think being able to marry the, 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 two, the two ideas was kind of one of those uh, match made in heaven full circle things for me that I, I, I got a chuckle out of. And, uh, you know, I got to play around with it, like let your freak flag fly with the pH as freak. And, um, you know, so it was there was a lot of sort of insider stuff on that label that that really made it fun. But, uh, yeah. So I want to go back to your, to your toy box that you were you were talking about. What's the what's the weirdest grape that you've ever put in your toy box that one you're glad you did and and, and have kept or have expanded? And the worst one you've ever put in the toy box that you, you know, wish you'd never even touched. Okay. So that's not all that difficult to answer. <laughs> so um, I, I, I was really pleasantly surprised by Sauvignon Blanc um, in our toy box. So I have one roll that is the oldest Sauvignon Blanc of Prince Edward County. I planted it in 2001. It's 130 vines. It now goes into our Sauvignon Blanc uh, where... In 2013, we planted out about another acre and a half of it. 
Um, so we're making around 250 cases, 200 to 200 to 300 cases a year of Sauvignon Blanc. And then along with that, Pinot Gris. And then the one that, um, you know, just was not a starter for me at all was Bacla Noir. It grows like a weed. Um, I, uh, you know, I'd made a lot of Bacla as an amateur winemaker. It was kind of interesting. And this is not to take anything away from Bacla Noir because it's an immensely popular um, wine, um, certainly with consumers at the LCBO and the sales numbers prove it out. But uh, for me, it's just, it's just not my jam. And, uh, and so, uh, so um, it was super vigorous, um, hard to control. And, uh, uh, and, and so uh, pretty early on, I decided, I think I made a Bacco Noir in 2005, uh, when I was really scrounging around for free. And I, I, I forget where all the fruit came from, but it had a little bit of our state stuff in it. And, um, and I aged it in American Oak and it was a barrel's worth and it was a one and done thing for me. So, um, so <laughs> yeah, good for you um, on that. Yeah. It's just me guys. You, you know what? And, and that's not, like I said, you, you know, um, some of the biggest selling, um, wines in, in Ontario are Bacco Noirs. And I guess it, uh, you know, certainly when you, you know, if you have uh, stuff like like my friends at Henry of Pelham do, where they've got some really really old heritage vines of that, and they're crafting it with a lot of love and care, um, and it's something that they're passionate about. Um, you know, I have have respect for it, but it's just not something that really attracted me personally. A very diplomatic way of of, hand, of handling that. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, Dan. I know it's something that I, I just I don't want to take it for granted that a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably a little familiar with the county and the hilling up of the vines and blah blah blah. But you you mentioned that it's a challenge to grow grapes out in the county. Can you just expand on that a, a little bit? Like, what is the challenge? What what is what is the biggest difference in, you know, say your yields from Prince Edward County compared to a Niagara vineyard? Um, yeah. I'm sorry. Kind of just leaving that wide open, but like just paint us a picture of, sure. of uh, what it's like to grow fruit so, in Prince Edward County. Really for me, what it comes down to is it comes down to a race against time in the fall. And um, so if you have unlimited hands, I suppose you could, could do it, but we don't. And uh, you know, I've got an incredible crew of um of farm hands uh that come up and and work with me um from mexico every year and actually jose my lead guy is going to be going into his uh 17th season with me and he's the longest serving employee of rose hall run not named sullivan so hmm. um <laughs> so jose and i go back to 2003 and uh he'll tell you even even more so than i that um, the, the window of opportunity to get everything done between the time that the last grapes come off and the time that the weather, um, gets so cold that it gets really hard to, um, work, um, with hilling up is, is fairly narrow. And, uh, even if you want to pursue things like the geotextiles that some people are going, uh, for, it's still a very, very time consuming process. So I think that there's a self-limiting aspect. Um, to that where um, it's as much as you can handle um, once you've picked to uh, then uh, uh, get prepared for winter. And typically that time frame is less than a month uh, to be able to do that. So us at 25 acres, we could probably be slightly bigger uh, than we are. And there are some, you know, plantings like uh, Cassidy's overall holdings are around 50. I believe the Grange is about the same and Huff is maybe slightly smaller than that, but in the same epoch. So I think that that is kind of maybe, um, you know, the max limit um, given the current sort of way things are done in Prince Edward County that, um, that, that, you know, seems to be the edge of the envelope right now. That's not to say that somebody maybe won't figure out a better way and, uh, to, to get things done. But, um, but, you know, I got my hands full with, uh, four guys and, and, and 25 acres to get ready for winter, um, most, uh, most years. And, uh, in a year like 19, where it was a really late pick and then we had a really nasty hard frost, uh, we got caught, um, with our pants down a little bit and, um, and, uh, you know, we lost a lot of fruit, um, so it's it's always a caveat 
Um, so in that sense, um, I think that's the biggest limiting factor. And then getting it all unburied in the springtime and getting it up onto the wires and tied up. Um, the nice thing about the way that we're doing it is our pruning decisions are easy. Everything above the snow or the soil line from where the hill is gets chopped off and you're starting with everything that's below the ground. Okay, so, so so you're you're fully hilling everything. Have you started? I know you you mentioned geotextiles, but I don't think you mentioned. Have you thought about starting to experiment with the I guess new technologies? <clears throat> yeah, I have, and um, and so honestly, I'm hedging a little bit. Um, it's it's pretty expensive, and I'm not sure that it's a big time saver. But it does speak to what you alluded to early, which is yields. And um, I believe that the the sort of silver line to geotextiles, at least the hope is that um, it will make the yields uh, a little more reliable and larger than what we typically see in Prince Edward County. So at my farm, um, it can be a little bit variable from year to year, but generally speaking, I'm really happy if I'm getting in the neighborhood of two to two and a half tons per acre on Chardonnay uh, and two tons an acre on Pinot Noir. And uh, I've had in 2017, that was the biggest um, crop we ever had. And I averaged uh, around three tons an acre across the property. Um, but uh, um, but I'll tell you, we were, we were going like hell to get it all picked. And, um, and so uh, I think um, you know, when you compare that to uh, a comparable vineyard in Niagara, uh, most of what I'm working with are, are other Pinot Noir and, and, and to some degree Chardonnay vineyards, which uh, the Chardonnays generally are in the, you know, three and a half to four and a half tons per acre range. And Pinot Noir, um, the, my, the main vineyard that I'm familiar with is owned by Bob Nadelko on the 20 mile bench. And and it is meticulously farmed. And, and uh, at the top end of that, we're usually going three tons, three and a half tons per acre. But um, but more often than not, we're in the two and a half ton per acre range. And most growers will tell you that that's a pretty happy place for, for, for Pinot Noir. Once you start getting up over three tons, three and a half tons per acre, um, you know, you, you potentially have some quality issues there. And what happens is the grapes aren't mature by the time that the the they're saying we want to come off the vine and they're they run the risk of breaking down so um so inherent and pinot noir the clusters are smaller and the fruit set is smaller riesling will you know routinely give you three clusters per shoot whereas in pinot noir um it's not even reliable that you'll get two clusters per shoot on every shoot so um so just a natural uh you know, vigor and uh, uh, fruiting potential of, of the vine itself is quite a bit lower. So, so you've been in business twenty years as of as of this year. That is correct. Yes, sir. Got it. So, would you change anything? And what I mean by that is, what would you tell your twenty year younger self if you were just starting out? What have you really learned, um, and what would you change? Well. Um, when I look back on it, I think that probably um, we uh, should have focused more on the business aspect of running a winery than we did early on in it. So it was very much a kind of a passion play and sort of an extension of my um, amateur uh, days. Um, and I had no experience working in the world of commercial wine and selling it and all of those things so now with you know uh two decades of seasoning uh in, in that i think that uh it would have been um a lot uh a lot easier financially if we um if we had uh, uh tried to have some wine on the shelves as soon as we opened uh or as soon as as soon as we could and 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 started uh, uh selling it that way and um and and then you know we um you know everybody will tell you when or should say you know you never get it totally right the first time when you build a winery so there would be for sure some things that i would change about the way that we built it but oddly enough you know we got a lot remarkably right um in that and i think it was one of the 
sort of real wild cards that uh, although it was a major, major expense, um, blowing that hole in the ground where our barrel cellar is now, um, I think that that and, um, and, and the facility that we have for making wine and putting that first and foremost was one of the things that really helped establish our quality and maintain it. Um, in the world of modern winemaking um, from a really early time. And it was a, it was a super important in, investment that we all, you know, bit our tongues and swallowed hard, um, particularly my partner, Cam, um, mm-hmm. when, uh, when it went in the ground. But, you know, now that we've fully grown into it and in some ways even outgrown it a bit, um, you know, I, I think it was, I think it ultimately was money well spent in, in, in cementing the quality of the wines that we're making today. So speaking of wines that you're making today, um, it's your 20th anniversary, like you said, what yeah. can we, what can we expect for celebration or I don't know, anything special coming out of the toy box for, uh, for consumers so, like Michael and I to, to look forward uh, to? So yes, we, we have, uh, is the short answer. So we have. Um, a brand new wine from the property that's a sparkler that you guys will be receiving uh, in the next probably week, I would think. And uh, it is a 100% estate-grown Pinot Noir Rosé. And I will leave it at that and let you guys pass your judgment. But once you've tried it and you want to talk to me, we can talk uh, we can send me an email and I'll tell you the backstory of the name of it. And, uh, and, uh, and then I'm also going to be producing, uh, uh, starting it with the 19 vintage. Um, I more or less have a, uh, uh, a gentleman's, um, handshake contract, um, with my friend, Bob Nadelko, who, uh, has a vineyard in super prime, uh, 20 uh, mile bench, uh, right on, uh, Cherry Ave. And I've been um, buying fruit from Bob for going on six or seven years now. And um, in 2019, we inherited the um, the uh, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot vines there. And um, uh, the Cab so dates back to 1999. And the Merlot, I actually picked as one of my first picks ever in 1995. And it dates to either 91 or 92. So um, so we're making a uh, blend of Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot from, uh, from, from Bob's Vineyard. And it's going to become a mainstay in our portfolio, I hope. And uh, the, I'm, I'm just working on the label right now. And it's going to be called Ultraviolet and uh or uv for short and uh and uh watch for this the 19 is is good i think it's really representative of it uh it's what i would call relatively old vines ontario bordeaux and varietals and uh and i i think it's going to really turn some heads uh um, in, in the next couple of years so those are the two main things right off the bat we also have a new stardust coming out and um, for the first time with a 20 vintage, because it was so awesome, um, I'm going to be um, launching uh, only in good years um, a, uh, or in years that I deem um, are of the quality, uh, uh, sort of super premium bottling of Estate Pinot and Chardonnay. So very, very limited production. And, uh, and uh, so I, I think that... Uh, um, 2020 will be the year that we launch that and uh and we'll see you know um uh if uh if there's an appetite um for it i think that there is and i i'm putting some extra special care into the cooperage selection um the clonal selection and uh various other things uh with that so there's a lot of sort of forethought going in, in into those wines oh i love that I'm thinking, uh, bob nadelko actually owns a, a no frills in uh, in burlington does he not he did, and yeah. uh, he just recently sold it. So Bob is now a gentleman farmer. I saw him uh, day before yesterday. Actually, I was doing some disgorging uh, at my at my with my friends down at Todd's Winery, who does that work for us. And uh, I I was able to stop by and have a nice socially distanced visit with Bob and his dog Lucas. We had a coffee together, and uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, so so Bob is a full time farmer now, and uh, he. Uh, 
Uh, he has, I guess, about eight or nine acres there. Charles Baker buys his Riesling, and then I buy everything else. So We, we share um, good recipes, actually, when I met him at, at the No Frills. <laughs> yeah, and, and Bob is an awesome dude. And, uh, and, and so, you know, uh, uh, really passionate about wanting to, about growing good fruit, not just wanting to, um, but man, oh man, uh, you know, when you, when you, uh, taste what's going to come from that vineyard, man, it'll blow your mind. So, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just super excited to be working with Bob, um, on, uh, on, on growing these. And, uh, um, the other thing in 20 is we'll be doing an Adelco Vineyard Pinot Noir again. So, um, just the fruit is so exceptional, um, not do it, you know, and, uh, and so we'll have more of it. And what's really nice is it's such a great counterpoint to what we grow in Prince Edward County, you know, and such a great display of just how fantastic, um, you know, Niagara bench fruit is. And, uh, um, you know, I try to make a point of saying it that, you know, all of my early learning and stuff was based on what I learned from people down in Niagara. And um, all of us in Prince Edward County owe a huge debt of gratitude to those pioneers um, for for what they did, um, you know, back in the day when people called them crazy for doing what we're doing today. So, you know. You know, I think that's as good a place as any to uh, to to wrap this up. I do like how you kind of alluded to us having you back on to talk about the new wine. So we'll definitely have to um, have to have you back because we'll be excited to talk about what's uh, currently in the in the lineup. And Dan, I want to thank you so much for giving us the time and apologize again for it taking us so long to finally get this in the can. Hey, no worries, fellas. Good things come to all of us who wait, right? <laughs> so, and, we got, and we got to speak about the 20th anniversary, so it yep. seems like good timing. True enough. So anyway, listen, take care of yourselves, guys. Stay safe. And, uh, you know, with any luck, we'll, uh, uh, we'll be able to get up close and personal within the next year or so. so. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Perfect. You said it. Dan is definitely one of my favorite people in the wine industry. He is always so generous with his time. And, you know, I, I love visiting the, the facility. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're in the industry and you haven't had a chance to go and really get to the meat and potatoes of wine, or even if you're not in the industry and you want to see who the evil scientists are in the industry, I mean, when I picture that, it's it's Dan. He's always... Well, I remember creative. that bottle of Tempranillo coming to the... To the to the tasting table one day and i went what the hell is this so yeah he's playing with a lot of a lot of stuff in that little sandbox of his and it's it's kind of neat and i'm kind of glad he got rid of the baco because everybody knows you can grow it so but it's a a thing like people like dan are are very important for any industry because he's clearly not content with just the status quo he he's got his his bailiwick like he's got the stuff that's um you know, people are expecting to be like the greatest hits album is always going to be for sale at Rose Hall Run. And I, I hope that's the case. But there's always, you know, and now for something from the new album, right? Yeah, there's always a new track coming. So uh, he's, he's not he's not happy to sit on those laurels. And it's, it's great to see. I have to I have to be honest with you. I think that's uh, that's just wonderful for him to keep going in 20 years. You know, I didn't realize that he had hit that 20 year mark. Uh, so I guess I guess that does make him definitely a legacy. Well, and I know last time we really uh, waxed nostalgic about Rose Hall Run, we uh, helped move a few bottles of JCR Chardonnay. And don't worry, I'm keeping track of how many times I've said it in this podcast. That's the uh, <laughs> the fourth mention. But uh, if you take a look oh, at the... Brian Schmidt's going to be a very happy man. If you uh, take a look at the Rose Hall Run website, they have a couple of back vintages of the, the JCR uh, Chardonnay for sale right now. Um, I'm Ooh. sure... Dan and Lynn would appreciate people checking it out. They've got the 2013 and 2014, which both would have been good years for the grape. grape was that? Chardonnay. I guess off the wagon. So, um, so yeah, go go check it out and you know keep supporting the local wineries, especially. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get a chance to see people face to face in the near future. Uh, I, I, do, I do like uh, Brian's idea of uh, incrementally raising your fees. We're not doing that. We are not doing that. I can't afford that. I cannot afford that. How about how about for every ten we raise it? I'm you know, for Andre every ten you mentioned, from... boom, down ten cents. Hang on. I'm Andre Pru from Andre. Yeah. Jeez, let's take a look at how many we got so far. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. Okay, you know what? We'll uh, we'll we'll keep we'll we'll maybe have a discussion on that. It's uh, anyways. <laughs> we'll bring Brian Schmidt on. He'll talk about it. I'm sure. 
I know Brian Schmidt is is one of our upcoming ones as we continue down the Cabernet Franc rabbit hole. We are working very hard on making that a focus for this year. I'm so excited about it. Anyways, before we get too far off topic, I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca. Make sure you check out our Patreon. Uh, as I've said before, and I'll keep saying it, it's not expensive to run the podcast, but if you take a moment to give us some support, you don't have to do it on an ongoing basis. Even a few bucks here, a few bucks there. Really, Michael and I really do appreciate it. And um, we appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast. We very much do. So thank you for that. And I'm Michael Pinkus at MichaelPinkusWineReview.com. Uh, on social media, he's Andre Wine Review. I am the grape guy or Michael Pinkus. Heck, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't amalgamate everything like you did, Andre. Well, take us away. Uh, it is morning. It's a beautiful, sunny day. It's uh, one of those warm days in Niagara. I'm not sure what's happening in Toronto, but uh, we seem to end it the same way every time. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. This episode of Two Guys Talking Wine was produced by Jim Ray and Adam Duran.